Welcome to the Gill Athletics Connections Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Cunningham, National Sales Manager for Gill Athletics. Our goal today is to connect you with coaches from around the world to learn their journey, share their stories, and just figure out who they are and what they're all about. So without further ado, let's get on and find out what today's guest has in store for us. Thanks again for joining us here on the Gill Athletics Track and Field Connections podcast. So excited that you would join us again uh, for another hour, two hours. Who knows? Maybe this will be another megapod and we're going to go five or six hours. Maybe not that this long this time, but I am super happy. Help me welcome today's guest, the men's head coach of Rowan University, Mr. Dustin Dimmitt. Dustin, how are you, sir? I'm good, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. If, if you're watching on YouTube, you see a very cool background. So if you're only listening, hop over to YouTube. He's got, uh, w- this is one of my favorite mascots. You're the, is it officially the owls or do you have some kind of, no, we are the Rowan props. So we are the props. only prop. So professor, then it was a studious owl, not very intimidating. So they re, uh, redid it and a little more uh, fierce looking owl now. I was about to say this guy, again, if you go to YouTube, check him out. This is not a, 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 a professorial uh, owl. This is like what an owl really is. They're kind of terrifying, actually. And, and this image here works. It's a very menacing owl. I, uh, I knew you weren't the owls. That's why I asked that. I was like, I, I don't think you're the owl. You're the professors. What, what, a, what a studious mascot. <laughs> yes, that and, you know, that's unique. And then our colors, not many brown and yellow teams either. That's right. Uh, so yeah. that's uh, another unique thing about us. Well, I, I love uniqueness. So that's, that's so cool. I, I do like that a lot. So Dustin, you are the men's head coach here at Rowan University. Uh, tell us just a little bit about Rowan, maybe for us that don't uh, know a lot about Rowan, how long you've been there, just kind of a 30,000 foot level of Rowan uh, University. Yeah, this was my seventh year at Rowan. Uh, Rowan used to be Glassboro State. Um, won five national titles as Glassboro State in the 80s in men's track and field. Um, became Rowan College when Henry Rowan donated a million dollars, or I'm sorry, a hundred million dollars uh, to Rowan, which was at that time the largest ever donation to a, a public institution. Wasn't an alumni. Um, donated because he needed engineers at his uh, companies in the South Jersey area. So he gave $100 million to start an engineering school. And it really helped transform Rowan from a small regional state school to now we're a, you know, national level um, in the, you know, US News and World Report rankings, research institution with two medical schools. We have an MD and a DO med school. So only us in Michigan State, I think, are the only public schools that have both. we're approaching close to 20,000 students. So one of the larger uh, D3 schools out there. Um, so pretty uh, unique um, kind of setting for us within our division and with the growth that we've, I think we're the second or third fastest growing university in the country. It changes each year, even in the top five, the last like four or five years. Uh, so I don't remember what it is this year, but you know, really growing rapidly here. I think we've built in my seven years here, 10 or 11 new buildings in that time. Um, so pretty exciting time to, you know, be at Rowan. When did it change from Glassboro to Rowan? Was this kind of recent-ish or this is back in the in the, 40, in the 90s. Um, 90s? Yep. You know, you, you slipped and you said a million and I don't want to poo-poo a million dollars, but I was like, well, just a million dollars to get a college named after you, huh? Yeah, no. uh, yeah, yeah hundred million. And he didn't ask for the college to change the name, like just the engineering school, but 
that was a pretty transformative gift. Um, Malcolm Gladwell does a, a cool podcast about that gift. Um, so um, in his uh, podcast, when he did a whole series on education, one of them was featured on Rowan and, and that, and you know, why did other people one. haven't given that much money to state schools since then. Yeah, I, so I'm a huge Malcolm Gladwell fan for Me many, too. many reasons. I love all of his books. Uh, he's a running fan. Uh, yep. He's dodging me. You know, I, I hit him up on Twitter every time he posts, you know, trying to get him on the show because I just love to talk about his running uh, passion and how he got into it and stuff like that. I do. So his podcast is Revisionist History. Quick plug. Yep. If you like, uh, I don't know, how would you describe it? Um, I, I kind of think of it as, uh, I don't want to like over state it like uh, as far as like if you like thinking and stories but to me it's it's storytelling that's that's his real gift yeah yeah it's a very eclectic mix of topics like it's you know anything from uh how lawyers are made and supreme court justices to college to music uh, all kinds of things so um my, my two favorite that he's done he did a two-parter on memories which was uh, again phenomenal in my opinion when you think about memories and how they are and how we think they are and then he did another one on golf courses and it was kind of a it's it's really interesting how he marries two topics and makes them work right so this topic about golf courses was just how wasteful they are yeah. you know these public you know they get all these tax breaks especially in california with the tax laws uh property tax laws and things like that and uh, you know he talked about you know the number of people that use them like square foot per person square foot. And if the same math was for a basketball court, it would be the equivalent of like me and you having a basketball court, the size of like a square mile, you know, to, yep. to you know, so wasteful, but then he married that up with CEOs who play golf. And because there's a database, you know, to get your handicap, you have to enter your database. So he got this database and looked at the CEOs and their stock performance and the CEOs that golf the most, their stock price, did the worst, you know, it's like, it's a real, yep. it's an addiction, you know, it really is, you know, there's guys that played, you know, something like 300 rounds a year. Now there's only what 365 days. So that means, you know, as a CEO, you're playing a round of golf, which takes three, three, four hours, right? Uh, yep. Like that's an addiction, right? Uh, okay. That's my plug for Malcolm's <laughs> uh, podcast, Revisionist History. It is awesome. Uh, maybe this plug will get me him on the show, but probably not, so. probably not, but maybe you never know. He's, he's, he's so fascinating. Uh, yeah. So it's interesting you brought that up. So, um, so you've been there seven years. Uh, you're the men's head coach there. We're going to learn about more about Rowan as we learn about your story. And I'd love to learn more about your journey here in this sport of track and field. So let's maybe take a step back. Tell us uh, when did track, when did you start? Were you a high school kid for track? Were you an age group? When did track become a part of your life? Yeah, like a lot of the uh, podcasts of yours I've listened to, um, track wasn't something that I ever thought about doing. It wasn't something I really even knew about until uh, maybe sophomore year in high school. Heard, you know, a couple of things freshman year. Um, I originally played baseball, uh, basketball, soccer. Um, I, I was, I got a, a knee surgery in eighth grade. And my first year in soccer, I was the slowest kid on the team coming back from that, you know, barely made the team, I think it was more out of pity, um, you know, that they were like, well, there's a spot open. Um, but then the next year, you know, I kept working with the rehab and things and I was the fastest kid on the soccer team. We did a two mile time trial and that um, led to um, them encouraging me to 
do track. Um, some other guys on the team that did do track said, hey, maybe you should think about doing this as well and be a distance runner. And, and I was like, ah, I don't know. Like, uh, but the more I thought about it, they're like, hey, you'll, you'll earn a varsity letter. I was going to be a JV baseball player. Um, you know, a, a great conversation with the high school baseball coach at the time. You know, so you'll get some playing time and things. You shouldn't give up on this. And I said, well, I think I can be better at this. And he said, well, if that's something you can be really, you know, good at, then, you know, do that and, and, you know, encourage me in that direction. And that went well. And they said, hey, maybe you should run cross country as well. And I said, you know, I, I started in soccer, like um, this. They said, you can do both. So um, our girls soccer practice was first. So I could do cross country practice at that time. And then I would leave and go to do boys soccer practice after. And it was about two miles away. It was at an elementary school, it wasn't at our high school, the soccer practice. And so I would often be five minutes late. And then the coach would have me run for being late. And I said, like, this really isn't a, a, a punishment for me. You know, like, you, you, I, you I, were I just ran 10 miles. But if you, you want me to go. <laughs> yeah, you were accidentally doing 100 mile weeks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it was, uh, you know, something that my senior year, I did focus just on running instead, uh, because it was going well, and our team was pretty good. And so I wanted to, you know, focus on that. And it, you know, led me into then wanting to do it in, in college as well. So where are you at this time? Where are you growing up? I, I grew up in Northeast Ohio, Alliance, Ohio, uh, where Mount Union is, who is one of our biggest rivals in Division Three. So that was less than a mile uh, away. I swam in their pool because I switched from basketball to swimming, which helped my running as well. We didn't have indoor track in Ohio at the time. Um, and, you know, swam in their pool every day. Uh, was good friends with their college swim coach. Uh, you know, got to know their track coach well, but it was just a little bit too close uh, to home for me. Um, and, you know, so I went on and uh, chose Grove City College, uh, which is a division three school in Pennsylvania, uh, about an hour uh, from my hometown, which that hour, an hour and 15 minutes, I think is a, a good distance away for a lot of people. Uh, well, I love you know, the impact coaches make on kids, right? And so I love that story about the baseball coach, because we hear so often the opposite, where even though you might not have been a star for baseball, but it's still that hoarding mentality of like, well, you know, Dustin, if you would just do more, if you would go through summer baseball and, you know, be on our team and then go through summer baseball and fall ball, you know, kid, you could, you could make it. But instead, yeah. you know, the coach sounded like he was like, well, you know what, if you think you can be better there, that's better for you you have my blessing, so to speak. Like, I, I like that attitude, you know, of, of uh, selflessness with, with that coach. Yeah, but it was a scary conversation. That guy never smiled. Uh, he, you know, was a pretty imposing physical guy. And so to go up and, and do that. And then once I got into running, uh, my high school coach there, Al Eibel, was so great, was uh, such a big role model for me, really was one of the main reasons I wanted to get into coaching later. I know we'll get into that as we move there. But like, um, it helped me, like I changed my major in college and I was like, if I could have that kind of impact on other people, like he had on me and some of my teammates, that would be great. And did you say Coach Al was your high school coach? Yeah. Yeah. Tell, yeah. tell us more about Coach Al. What, what, uh, what influence, and were you noticing that influence at the time or was this a hindsight 2020 later on you look back you're like man that guy really cared for me and helped me or were you able to notice it during the time pretty quickly I think that's one of the reasons why I started doing cross country when I decided to pick between soccer and cross country why I picked as well a big part of that was uh coach Eibel he was um you know so he didn't get paid during track he was our cross country coach he volunteered in track uh 
and you know really always had our best interests uh, at heart, like how he raced us and things. Our league was pretty unique in cross country in high school where we didn't do any dual meets. We only did invitational, so pretty similar to college, but the Federal League was one of the best leagues in Northeast Ohio and in Ohio uh, the whole time I was in uh, high school. So I think it really was uh, beneficial. Um, my high school had a multi-time big school state champion, footlocker, All-American uh, while I was there. Um, on the girls' side, Jen Wallum, like she was great. And, um, you know, obviously Coach Ibel knew what he was doing, having, you know, those kind of athletes, but it also was just um, how honest he was with us, like really telling us like this. And I think what really made track speak to me was what you put into it is what you get out. Like you're going to get better if you put the time in and you listen and you do things the right way. Um, not everybody's going to be the footlocker All-American that, you know, Jen was or state champion, but you're going to achieve what you can do if you put that time in. And I think that was something that people had told me that they said, you know, shoot a thousand shots a day in basketball and it just never clicked. You know, not that I didn't do some of that, but it, like running really clicked for me. Um, there was a guy who went to my church as well um, that had been a, a sub 30 minute 10K guy at Mount Union and who lived uh, in town. And, you know, he said, hey, I heard you started running. I'm going to come to your house every day at 7 a.m. and we're going to go for a run. And I said, OK, you know, and like those kind of things. And he said, like, just put in the work do this and you're going to get better. And to me, that was, and I mean, little things too. He said, you shouldn't drink soda because, and I mean, he said, you shouldn't drink pop because I'm from Ohio and uh, my wife's influence on me uh, not being in that area. I say soda now, and this is more of a soda area, but um, you know, he said that that's empty calorie. And I stopped drinking it then. And I haven't had it since I was 16. So it was, um, you know, just something that I said, yeah, it's not something I drink that often anyway. If that'll make me better running, I'll do it. And, you know, so people like that. And I think those little things there that, you know, people that, um, you know, touch your life that way and help send in another trajectory that you would never have known that that, you know, really helped me take running more seriously and, you know, kind of see that that was built on with what the coach was saying and everything else. Well, first of all, I'm from the South. So I'm a Coke guy. Everything's Coke. Like, yeah, can yep. I get a Coke? Yeah, what kind do you want? Yeah, I'll take a Sprite. Yeah, that's that's where I'm at on that uh, basis. I'm about to put a, a, um, a poll on Twitter and see what everybody is, a soda, pop, or Coke person. Yeah, yeah I love that that kid, I mean, he's on the Mountain Union team, you know, affected your life. Like, he just... Well, he, he wasn't a kid. He, he had a daughter who ran with me. He was 40 years old and was still oh, running. Okay. I thought he went and, to school at Mountain Union. Yeah, like, he had went to Mountain Union. He told me he was the fastest guy ever to not be a Division Three All-American at the National Championship. I never verified that. But that's, that sounds like know, one of the, that sounds like one of those baseball stats. You know, his yeah. ERA is uh, you know one point four on a Tuesday night with a full moon. You know, like I'm exactly. the fastest guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I'd love that because you know I'm I'm such a believer in having a positive effect of where you are today. You know, we sometimes get into these grand delusions of like, man, I can't affect the world positively because I'm stuck in Eufaula, Alabama, or you know. Um, Glassboro, New Jersey, you know, just thinking towns like that. And it's like, well, no, you actually can make a huge impact on the world in the 10 mile radius of where you sit today. That guy, a member of your church said, oh, you started running. Okay, well, I'm going to help you. Like, if, if you're willing to have the help, I'm willing to help you. And I'll give you little tidbits, like don't drink Coke and stuff like that. That's, that's yeah. awesome. what an impact you haven't drank. Have you literally not drinking a Coke? Since, I'm sorry, uh, 
a soda, a pop, a soda pop. Have you not drank in a soda pop since then? Oh, only once. Um, and it was because it was a competitive thing and I'm a, a very competitive person. And I had a job uh, during college where I worked for a newspaper uh, in advertising. And my boss uh, said, I heard you can really eat a lot. There's this eating challenge at the local restaurant. Um, and part of it was you had to drink a liter of soda. And I'll say still to this day that that's what got me in it was because I hadn't had soda at that point for maybe four or five years. And I tried to drink a liter with three pound, a pound of meat on each. It was like three two third pound burgers, like separate with buns, but each one also had a third a pound of bacon and ham on them and a side and, and all this. And that I asked if I could have water and they said, no, you had to do that. And, and I, I had my stopwatch on, you know, you had to do it in 30 minutes. So I had the first one down in eight minutes with the side, like I, I was, I was going, um, but it, it um, I, I, I did uh, throw in the towel um, at the end. Unfortunately, I uh, wasn't able to do it. Amazing thing, the record for that was like eight or nine minutes. Um, so it was crazy, the King Kong challenge. Uh, but my boss paid for it because if you fail, you, know, you have to pay for it. And he gave me a couple hours to recover where he said, you know, go home, you know, take, take a minute. I didn't eat meat for at least two weeks, I think, after that. Like it was, yeah. What a real track coach. You had your stopwatch with you. <laughs> like I got to get splits. I got three of these things plus the Coke. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> so yeah. when you were, um, you know, we just came off of a weekend. We're recording this the, the Tuesday after NCAA division one and division two indoor track championships. And of course we're, uh, unfortunately we're, uh, we're eventually going to talk about the sadness of, we didn't have a D three championship. Uh, but we also had the division one, cross country championships as a distance runner you ran cross and track did you have a a favorite was there one you liked cross country better than track or both and, and why yeah um I was more of a middle distance runner um so the 8k was a big uh step up um in college um but I uh, ripped my quad my sophomore year and I um in college and you know, eventually came back, but it just never really felt the same. Um, and so I kind of moved up in distances and I really grew to love cross country more and more as it went. Um, and I, I guess as I ran more miles and those kind of things uh, as well and became stronger uh, for that. But um, yeah, I would say cross country uh, by the end was probably my, my favorite season. But I think a part of that was we didn't have indoor and we were all, it, even in college, Grove City didn't have indoor at the time they do now. Um, so I think I always felt underprepared uh, for the track season compared to some of the people we were competing against, where if you put in the work in the summer and things, you were as prepared uh, as everybody else. And um, I did, you know, train with some of the Mountain Union guys in the summer who stayed there all, all summer. Um, one of the guys worked with me. Uh, we were lifeguards. Uh, Mountain Union swim coach was my boss, uh, but at a, a country club pool and she would like schedule our breaks at the same time so we could do workouts together, all kinds of things to, you know, really try to, to help us out. So you chose Grove City College, which she says about an hour, hour and 15, which is a real good distance, right? You know, yep. an hour to three hours, like, you know, you're away from home, but you can get home if you need and want to. So I love that. What made you choose Grove City and what were you looking at to go into initially for academically? Yeah, I, I really didn't know coming out of, out of high school. Um, I was looking at engineering mainly because my math and science teacher said, you're good at this, you should do that. Um, and I said, okay, you know, and I said, you'll make a lot of money. Um, but 
I said, uh, that tug in the back was like, I might want to be a teacher too. And maybe be a high school coach. Like, you know, my coach had influenced me and they're like, no, don't be a teacher. Like we don't make any money. Um, so the first, uh, Grove city was one of the few schools that I felt was good at both of those. It also ended up being the lowest cost and finances was a big factor. I was, uh, the first person in my family to go to college. So that was something, um, that, you know, factored. We didn't maybe know as much as some people did with it. My mom did a lot of research and we visited a lot of schools and, you know, we really looked at that and my mom did get a degree, um, after me. So that was really great. Um, we got a, you know, went to community college and, and did that. Um, so that was, you know, great, but my sister and I, uh, were the first in our, in our families. And I had a cousin that was a year older that, um, I think graduated the same year as I did, um, or maybe a year after he had changed his major, um, a couple times and switched schools. Uh, but you know, I was the first, even in my extended family uh, for that. So, um, it was really just trying to find a place that was affordable that we thought would give me a good, um, education and, at the time, uh, they had a their, their team had you know won their conference for a while in track, and that was appealing uh, to me because I got uh, you know recruiting letters for soccer, for swimming, for track, and I was you know I knew I wanted to run. Um, and in Grove City, I could have swam because we didn't have indoor, but the overlap of those seasons uh, was so much, and I they did ask me to swim there, but I really wanted to focus on running, and um, it, it you know worked out well in the long run. Yeah, absolutely. It all, it all works out. Right. Uh, what year did you graduate high school? 99. Yeah. Okay. So still, cause I graduated in 94 and I was the first to go to college and you know, you don't realize it until later on, you know, we're, we're adults and we have that uh, great thing of perspective. We, you know, we've had the experience now we can look back. I, I don't know about today's kids. Cause I don't, you know, know of a kid. I don't have a kid this age right now about, you know, looking forward to colleges and researching them. But back then, you know, in the mid to late nineties, you know, the internet wasn't a thing at that point really to what it is today. But, you know, we, 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 we researched colleges by who sent us stuff, uh, who was really close. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then maybe in, 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 it sounded, maybe it was different for you. I didn't have other people like other uh, friends of parents that went to college. So I didn't get to like, Oh, you went to, yeah, I'm from Alabama. So I'm like, you didn't go, you went to Auburn. How did, you know, what was that like? Or, Hey, you went out of state, you went to, uh, you know, university of Florida. How, you know, what was that like? What, you know, how did the, how did you pay for, I had no clue yeah. how to pay for college. I mean, just literally no idea and really lucked into going to college and having it paid for and stuff. So uh, I just can't imagine, you know, I, I just feel like the kids today have it so much better than we did. <laughs> yeah. You can almost find out everything with just a couple of keystrokes on things. So you mentioned, you know, engineering, you mentioned maybe teaching. What did your parents do? What influence did they have on you for a potential career? Well, they, they encouraged me that um, engineering, you know, that's a high paying field. But when I wanted to switch, uh, very supportive, like do what you are going to enjoy doing, not just what's going to make money. Um, you know, the question, what well, you know, how much less that makes, you know, that came up and I said, yes, you know, I, I do understand that, but I think I'll enjoy doing it more because classes were going well in engineering, but it was like, I was a computer engineer and like, it was great when, you know, that coding worked or, or whatever in those, you know, first year classes. But I couldn't picture myself sitting in a, in a cubicle. Um, I'm a interactive, you know, person. Like I, I like talking to people, um, having those relationships. And, and I didn't see that there. I even went to engineer for a day in high school and they, you know, told me my 
Um, reading ACT score was too high to be an engineer. You know, typical engineer joke, you can't read or write. You can only, you know, do math. And my father-in-law is an engineer uh, now. So, you know, we've told, you know, those jokes with, with him, him as well. And um, it just was something that I felt like um, I could do, but it wasn't something maybe I'd enjoy doing. Um, and my, my assistant coach uh, now here uh, works in the engineering department and went into industry and missed the coaching aspect. So came back here and teaches in engineering and um, helps out. So he had a similar thing, but did stick it with engineering a lot longer than I did. When you, when you made that change, was that change because you started thinking like coaching is my future or was it just more of like, hey, I, I just don't enjoy engineering. So let's try the education type major and but not maybe yeah. necessarily coaching. Yeah, I just thought that I would enjoy it more and that would give me an opportunity to coach as well. Um, I never really thought about college coaching as a career. Like I didn't click, like I knew I had a college coach, but I didn't, you know, think like that's what somebody like sets out to do. So even graduating, I didn't didn't plan on that. It was let's go be a, a high school teacher and have it, try to have an impact that way on people and, and in coaching um, as well. And, um, and that was something like I said, even my high school coach, uh, was a teacher for me. Um, he was a science teacher, but also taught a hybrid English science class where we read like environmental um, stories and things. And like, it was part of a science club. We went out to Wyoming and most of our team went and trained at, you know, altitude for the couple of weeks that we were out there. Uh, but, you know, that really taught me to be a better writer. And that came from a science teacher who had an English minor and, and that. And I was like, that helped really help prepare me for college. Um, so, Again, those things, maybe I can help somebody else along the line. So when I was a high school teacher, I started a class on the history of music. I was a history teacher and, um, and that was a writing and pop culture. So it was movies and music and we did um, movie reviews and that was that try to teach them to be better writers in a different sense of what they got in English. So I, I really tried to channel uh, Coach Eibel in a lot of ways uh, later on, you know, through that and when I was a teacher as well. What influences uh, coaching wise did you have at Grove City? Um, well, I said that they had been pretty good for a while. The coach who had been there for a long time retired as I came in. Um, and so we had a new coach um, and uh, Coach Landis was only there for a year. Um, she had a, a family issue. Her mom got sick and she moved you know, back where she was from. And so we got a, another coach and Allison Williams who didn't really have a, a distance background. Um, and you know, was a great hurdler. She made the, you know, finals of the Olympic trials and our team continued to win uh, every year. But, um, you know, she talked to us as captains. I was named captain as a sophomore um, there. And, you know, we'd give feedback each year and she'd incorporate it in. She'd do more, you know, research on it. But that kind of got me into coaching a little bit more because I started doing research of what we could do better. Like she was open to listening to us. Like she had the captains over for dinner. It was a you know, like a, a nice relationship with it, a, a give and take there. And uh, I said, I got hurt pretty bad. I changed events. I didn't get much better in college from where I was in high school. I was all conference as a freshman and didn't really, you know, get much better from there. And that really got me into reading the biochemistry side of it and things like that. So now I'm reading these on the side as a history major, you know, for that. And, um, you know, really got me into thinking about that stuff more. Um, and that really got me thinking more about coaching later on. You know, shout out to Coach Williams there, that example that you just gave of, you know, she was more of a sprinter, speed power type event. Uh, but as she 
you know, got yearly feedback from, from the, from the distance runners and I assume maybe throwers as well. And then incorporated that. I mean, that's, that's a real testimony. You know, sometimes we can get digged in, dug into our own and it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You stay over there a group that I don't coach or, you know, I know what's best just, you know, hold your line. But I love that, uh, you know, feedback loop mechanism there that she incorporated. That's, that's a sign of, you know, that that's humility, right? You know, not thinking, you know, the best and know everything and listening to your constituents, which in this case is your athletes and, uh, and being the adult, right? So she didn't, yep. I assume she didn't take everything. It's like, Hey, Dustin, I know you want to do an ice cream social every Friday, yeah, but we're not right. So, you know, those kind of things, like you still have to make the, uh, be the final as the head coach decision maker, but to have that, like I said, that humility of listening and incorporating that had to, as an athlete, you know, as an 18, 18, 20 year old athlete that had to like embolden you of like, oh, like people listen to me, people um, take feedback. Did that affect you as you look back now through your coaching career? Did that have a positive effect on you through your coaching career? Do you kind of have that same kind of feedback loop or a different mechanism? Yeah, uh, one of the things we encourage um, all our athletes, and I'll say like the distance runners talk about a little bit more than a lot of other event groups, but we do have, you know, some other guys that talk to me pretty regularly about it is um, ask why we're doing things. And there's a time and a place for that. And, you know, with Coach Williams, it was the same way. We met at the end of the year and talked about it. And then she incorporated some of those ideas, but it wasn't ever like, hey, we should do this workout today, um, you know, from us as athletes. Um, you know, I always respected the fact that she was the coach and she was the one, you know, in charge of the program. But we, one of the things I tell every one of my athletes is if you have a question about why we're doing something, please come in and ask me because we're doing it for a reason, biochemically, energy system-wise, um, competition season-wise, we're preparing someone to double, you know, whatever it is, we're doing it for a reason. We're not just, you know, grab bagging workouts and, uh, finding what was in runner's world that week or, you know, whatever, um, there's a reason why. So if you want to know, we want to tell you, because I hope that encourages other people who might be interested to be a coach. And if people that bring that out, you know, we try to get on them earlier about, you know, maybe how to get a grad assistantship and things that I never thought about and didn't know about and kind of got into college coaching a little bit differently than, you know, a lot of that, that standard route. Well, that's a great segue. That was, uh, you must be reading my notes because that was my very next question. So tell me more about that. How did you get into coaching college? That's going to be the number one thing people listen for. It's always like, how do I coach college? How do I coach college? Uh, what I taught level ones, I don't, you know, a high school coach would come up and ask me, well, you know, cause I used to coach high school and move to college and I'd be like, uh, you don't stay in high school, man. You, you got a pretty good gig in high school coaching. Trust me. <laughs> yeah. When I left high school, I took a pay cut. So mm -hmm. it was, um, but, uh, so the, right out of college, uh, there was another coaching change at Grove City. They added somebody to be a cross-country coach, and Coach Williams was just track. But again, she knew she wasn't a distance person. There was actually an assistant basketball coach who had been a NAIA cross-country national qualifier uh, there in Tim Rice. And he said, you've been you know, captain since his sophomore year. Um, if you get a teaching job in the area, would you, be con would you consider helping me out? You know the team. Um, you know, and he runs a podcast now actually as well about uh, coaching um, and, 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 and basketball more. But because um, he left after that year, that first year that I was there while I was helping out to become a head basketball coach. He finally got his dream, which was that. And I, you know, wrote the workouts the rest of the year. Coach Williams was the coach and name, but she let me have that, um, you know, kind of authority to run all the workouts and to plan everything uh, the rest of the year. And, uh, 
you know, we were able to win the conference uh, title on both ends on the men and women. And for the men, we were a little worried coming in. Uh, my senior year, we won by one point um, and we lost four of our top seven and the other team was bringing everybody back. So it was something that we were, you know, really uh, been concerned about um, and, you know, a little bit worried about in there. Um, but it was something that, you know, was really, you know, exciting to be able to go out and, and do that. So that's how you started your coaching, uh, college coaching. I love that he has his own podcast now, by the way. I encourage, I'm one of those, I'm all inclusive for podcasting. So I encourage everybody to start your yep. own podcast because to me, it's like no different than uh, having your own social media channel. You know, it's just, it's just audio. So why would, I would encourage you to have your own Twitter account and maybe Facebook and Instagram. So why wouldn't I encourage you to have your own podcast? And so to that point, I'm gonna do a little self plug here uh, to help people. I actually created a quick article on LinkedIn, like just a down and dirty, you wanna start a podcast? Here you go, here are the five things to get started. And you literally, if you read this article, you could have a podcast up within an hour. So if you want that article, uh, either hook up with me on LinkedIn and just search for my name, Mike Cunningham, of course, uh, or shoot me a, on Twitter to shoot me a message or a DM. Uh, I have a simple Twitter account as well at Mike Cunningham. Uh, but I would love to help if you're listening, you want to start a podcast. This is literally one of those times where I'm like, hey, if I can do it, trust me, you can do it as well. Uh, not brain surgery, uh, by evident of this guy having a podcast. So would love to help anybody out there that's listening. Uh, I've helped many, many others. Some of the podcasts you probably uh, maybe listen to off track, off track podcast, the, uh, Ryan Banta's, um, compendiums podcast. Uh, I've helped those guys and gals get off the ground and, and improve and keep getting better and just want to help anybody that's out there. Okay, self-promotion over. Uh, back to you, Dustin. We're here. This, you know, this podcast is about you. Don't let me get off sidetracked about me. So, what was the next step as you are coaching? You're writing the workouts. Uh, you having success. I mean, you know, having a conference championship team—that's no small feat. That's not easy <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. What was next? Well, next was um, he left. So I was like, well, maybe I can get this job. This would be, you know, great. And so I reached out to the AD. Um, and he said, you know, well, we're really looking for somebody with an exercise science master's in this. And, you know, I just graduated. Um, and I said, well, maybe I can get that. You know, like uh, Coach Rice had told me um, he had gotten his master's degree at the U.S. Sports Academy. Um, that's an online thing that, you know, if you're not sure what you're doing next and you aren't stuck to an area, it might be a great way um, to do that. So I said, hey, I can do it here. But that, that wasn't one of the majors at the time there. Uh, Slippery Rock was local. Um, I'm teaching middle school at the same time right now. So like I was volunteering, I was driving an hour each way to Grove City to coach um, during that uh, because I liked my teammates, you know, from when I'd been there and wanted to help and loved coaching. Um, but I was, they asked me to coach high school um, track there, but they didn't have a cross country team. Um, they had cut it because there wasn't interest. Um, and so I was gonna coach high school uh, that year there and was a middle school teacher and, um, you know, did that for a year and um, enjoyed doing it. But middle school wasn't really maybe uh, my calling uh, for teaching and um, had another um, teaching opportunity. Um, funny story too, I was back in the dial-up internet days and I had a cell phone. So I just left my dial-up connected all the time. Um, so somebody was calling me from a job fair in college to see if I was still interested in a teaching position and found my original resume, found my home phone number on that, called there. My mom called me and said like, so I called and they said, can you come 
tomorrow for an interview. And I was home in Ohio at the time. I didn't have any interview clothes, anything like that, because I lived two, two and a half hours away where I was teaching. And so I said, like, all I have is shorts. And they said, just come in that. So um, I did uh, show, show up, in, you know, and I started it saying, I'm so sorry. And the one, cause the one guy said, it was really nice of you to dress up. And I said, I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm just joking. And that was a great, you know, time for like the, uh, you know, principal and assistant principal that I worked with for five years um, at that high school uh, or four years um, there. Uh, but one of the teachers um, later on told me like, hey, that year we interviewed, can you believe some a-hole like showed up in shorts? And I was like, yeah, that was me. You know, and he said, of course it was. You know, and um, but it, it worked out well. Um, it was really quick. It was like within a week. So I moved there. They asked me to coach cross country as well at the high school. So I said, great. But they didn't have a track team. It was a small rural uh, Pennsylvania uh, town. Um, and those smaller schools can't field too many teams in the spring. So they had uh, boys volleyball and they had baseball. Boys volleyball is really big in, in northwest Pennsylvania. Um, and one of the guys uh, from that high school actually went on to be the uh, division one player of the year um, at Penn State. Uh, so pretty cool um, things, but I still wanted to be involved. I, was, I had that coaching bug now and said, maybe I do want to be um, a college coach. Um, and it didn't work out there. And that they had offered to interview me. They said, but, you know, we're really looking for someone with this background. And I wasn't going to be able to finish that in time. So I said, you know, okay. Um, so I, I just walked in at Allegheny College, uh, you know, asked for the track coach and, you know, went up to Bill Ross and said, you know, I don't know if you remember me. I, I ran at Grove City. Um, and he said, yeah, you know, you know your name sounds familiar. Uh, I wasn't good enough that he was really going to remember me. Um, but, you know, I had gotten maybe a recruiting letter from him in high school and things. So maybe my name rung a bell. But um, I said, would you need help in the track season? I would love, you know, to help out I'm at Maplewood High School you know, down the road, I'm living in Meadville. Um, and he said, well, how many days a week can you come? And I said, every day like that. I didn't understand that question. Like to me, um, you know, as a coach and having people who want to help out, you know, just to stay around it, maybe for a day, I, I've seen where that question came from now. But at that time, it didn't click. I was like, well, I'll be there every day. Like, I, I, I love coaching. I want to, you know, work with people. I want to learn. Um, and he said, oh, yeah, that, that, that would be great. You know, um, and so, you know, that started my time there and he was a great mentor to me, um, four years there, eventually, um, you know, trying to figure out how I could get a college coaching job. I became AD at the high school, uh, because the question I was afraid of was you're part-time there. You're not there for recruiting visits. You're at this high school, you go to meets, you might plan some workouts, you're there doing that, but how do we know you can run a program? And so I became AD at 24 years old. I was the youngest AD in Pennsylvania. Um, and, and, that, and at that school, it wasn't you stopped teaching. It was you got an extra prep period to be AD uh, for the middle school and high school. Um, so that, that position opened up. I applied for it. I had started a master's in athletic um, leadership and athletic, uh, you know, uh, and sport coaching at the U.S. Sports Academy. So I said, look, I'm getting a master's in this. Um, the school district was helping pay for that master's. So they, you know, it did work out and I got that position and held that for, you know, three years, which was a lot of uh, work because we'd have a, a basketball game. So I'd teach, I'd go to practice at Allegheny and I'd come back and run the basketball game. 
um, you know, finish at 10 and, you know, start again the next day. But to me, it was all about reaching that goal. And it was the same thing from running. Like you put in the work, you, you know, visualize what you want to do, and then you put a plan in to actualize, you know, that goal. And that, that was what, you know, I did there. And, and Bill gave me great feedback. He gave me additional responsibilities with other event groups where it started out, like, here are the workouts. You can run them for the distance runners, the, you know, designing workouts, or if you really want to be a college coach, you can't just be a distance runner, learn another event. So he said, you have the jumpers now. And I was really lucky. I had uh, an All-American jumper right away that I learned probably more from her than, uh, you know, she did from me. But other coaches, you know, would say, hey, your, your athlete's doing this because they had such great respect for Bill and he would help with it too. But like, I'll never forget Gary Aldrich at, at CMU at Nationals was like, hey, your girl's overextending a little bit. And, you know, that was something I wasn't seeing yet. You know, I was picking up some things. I knew certain things to look. You know, I became a USATF level two jumps coach and I had Boo she uh, Sheck Snyder for that, who was, you know, the best in the business uh, for that. So felt, you know, really lucky uh, that he led that. And I learned so much from that. And that was the year right after, you know, Gary said that, but, you know, we made that change and some of the other things I was seeing and she, you know, the last spot in the finals by a centimeter. And that was my first time really sweating out field events. Like we'd had things and she'd won conferences and we had some other guys that did well. And, you know, I, I knew, I thought general training theory and like what we were doing with plyos. But, um, you know, one of the messages I've got from your podcast is we're always learning. We can always talk to other people and learn. And, you know, that was something that, that was the first time where I'm like, distance runners, you always have control of, you know, what you can do, but you can't control that person jumping after you or before you and that, and I, and I just made me really fall in love with the jumps. And, you know, I, I coached jumps at, at Buffalo State after, even though I was a distance runner and um, work with our jumpers here, even though I have two Olympic jumpers on my staff um, and Norm Tate, uh, who is a, you know, U.S. Olympian in the triple jump and national uh, champion in the long jump and triple jump and then Milton Good in the high jump. And they do a lot of technical work with our jumpers. We have a almost coach by committee approach with them where, you know, we have a, a set training plan that we're doing in practice. But when it comes to technical things, we talk to each other, like nobody ever wants credit. So, you know, but that all started, you know, back there with Bill really challenging me. If I would have been in Allegheny one more year, I was going to be in charge of the throwers. And he had been a thrower, you know, he was one of the best javelin thrower or javelin coaches in the country, he had been a national level hammer thrower. Um, had this clinic where people came all over the country, you know, in Javelin to work with him. And um, actually, I got uh, the call, um, you know, for an interview for a head coaching job while I was at his Javelin clinic, learning how to throw jab. You know, I learned how to pole vault while I was there because we had a pole vault coach uh, who was actually the teacher who made that comment about, you know, me wearing shorts. He got involved there, too, because he was one of the top 10 pole vaulters ever in South Dakota. You know, that's what he kept telling me. That was like, I think, 14 feet. But he, you know, he was like, I'm still one of the top 10 guys ever, you know, in that. And, you know, just the character of people in our, our uh, sport and, you know, the things that, you know, we find to say, you know, yeah, but I'm, I'm still, you know, doing pretty good because I was there. Uh, but, you know, I learned to pull ball and all those things, you know, was all because Bill really pushed me in those areas and um, eventually found, he said, how much do you make, you know, as the AD there? Let's see if we can match that at Allegheny. And, um, but I mean, even when I started and I was getting paid nothing, the AD at the time, Larry Lee, like called me and he said, I really appreciate what you're doing to a volunteer coach. Like 
usually an AD wouldn't know who those people were. And he was like, here's 10 meal passes for the cafeteria because I, I might not be able to pay you, but I want to give you something. And that's something that, you know, always stuck with me that, you know, he was able to, you know, do that for a person who, you know, I, I felt he wouldn't know. But he said, Bill said, you're doing a great job. We, we appreciate it. We'll try to get you money eventually. And, you know, went from there. So a few weeks ago, we had Mike Erb from Indiana on the mm -hmm. podcast, who also spoke highly of Bill. Uh, and, and what a great mentor in that sense of not just letting you pigeonhole yourself, right? And coaching other events and being involved, you know, as we listen, and I've had the honor uh, to interview, you know, super high level coaches, and almost all of them to a T have that advice of like, you know, you're not a sprints coach or a distance coach, or a you're a track coach. You know, all the events are uh, very similar. There's just some differences in where the body moves or the uh, energy system usage, but don't pigeonhole yourself as a distance coach. And even if you don't end up coaching jumps, but you, you know, and you have, uh, but even if you don't start coaching other events, learning those other events will help you be a better distance coach. Uh, and you mentioned, you know, one of the great ones, Boo Shexnader. W where did you do your level two at with Boo? In Houston. Oh yeah. Okay. Good. Uh, that was my first level two as well was jumps with Boo. And, you know, I, I credit him. I coached for 10 years. It was literally right at the end of the five-year mark. I go, you can see the difference in my last five years, my first five years, night and day, you changed my coaching career, Boo. Um, so uh, that's awesome. When you uh, were at Allegheny, was, was Mike Herb there or was he a little bit before you? He was before me and, and Bill has such a great coaching tree. Cause like how many coaches had, you know, him as a coach or, you know, we're an assistant coach there. It's just, you know, really blown me away. And um, yeah, but yeah, Mike was, was a little bit uh, before me. And um, when I was there, we had three assistants that got head coaching jobs within a year um, of each other. Um, and it was, you know, kind of crazy because you really try to get that head coaching job. And it's so frustrating at times because you see somebody's time and you're like, I feel like I'm not qualified, you know, but it's just not the best fit. And there are certain positions where I was a finalist or were things that I was upset I didn't get. And it really ended up being the best thing for me because it wasn't, wasn't the best, you know, fit for you. But I tried for, you know, four years, five years trying to get a head coaching job. And I got offered two on the same day, um, which again, how does, how does that happen when you try, you know, that hard to get it? And then, you know, the floodgates kind of open, you know, when it rains, it pours and, and that's, that's what happened too on the, on the same day. And then had to, yeah. Well, put a pin in that because before that, I would like for you to tell me more. I don't know much about the U S sports Academy. I do know it's at least it was, I don't know if it still is. It was in Mobile, Alabama. You know, I'm yep. from Alabama. So I knew of it down there. Uh, tell me more about the sports Academy. Maybe first people who don't know what it is at all. I do know it's, well, I, I don't know. You tell me what, what kind of school is it? Is it all masters and uh, secondary education like that? Or what, what is it? Yeah, they have uh, undergrad masters, doctoral level, um, all the way uh, across the gamut. There is a physical campus, uh, but majority of classes are done uh, online. Um, and for me, that was important because I knew I didn't want to stay being a middle school teacher. So if I got a job somewhere else, and I started at Clarion, which was nearby, or Slippery Rock, would I be, am I stuck here now and I can't move to that job? And I knew Coach Rice had done it. Um, actually, our head football coach here at Rowan got his master's there as well. Um, so it was something that was a really, you know, great option to me. And, and at times, um, you know, I think people were like, oh, online education, but that's become more of a standard thing now. Um, and they were one of the first to do it. And 
you know, did a really good job with it. I learned a lot. I took classes in a wide variety of things that, you know, even the electives in that master's in sports psychology and some other things um, that have helped my coaching, you know, immensely in, in biomechanics and the physics of it. And, you know, in track, that's what it's all about. And I wrote every paper on it, on a track event. And, you know, but that doing that really helped me learn because I was learning jumps at the time. So I did a paper on the pole vault and the mechanics of the pole vault. And that really had me look at, you know, what pole vaults over 150 different little movements that you're trying to get perfect to have a great jump. And, you know, that, that education really challenged me to help me become a better coach there too. So for especially people who, you know, aren't sure where they're going to be or tied in or, you know, don't have that GA position, it may be a, a good, um, option for me that the school district I was teaching for would pay uh, 70 or would pay state school tuition prices in Pennsylvania wherever you went so I paid like 75 percent of my master's um, and I was able to do it in exactly what I wanted at the pace um, you know I could do it because you could you know get it done in three or four weeks uh, if you could do that much writing because uh, it was a lot of writing and um, a lot of research and those things but um, or you could take it, you know, over three months and, and spread it out. So um, it worked out really well for me. Yeah, it's interesting, the perception of online education. You know, uh, and I remember Sports Academy having one of those, uh, uh, not, not them having a negative reputation, people having a negative thought towards online education. And then you start yep. finding out, you know, universities like Grand Canyon and Liberty, you know, they, they helped spur this online education and the University of Phoenix came on. And now I'm willing to bet vast majority of colleges have some kind of post, you know, take COVID out of it, of course. But I think most colleges have some sort of online education in regards to degrees, not just, you know, uh, junior college or, you know, local college adult education type stuff, but like actual degree seeking individuals uh, that you can do online now. It, it's amazing. The It was this pariah, like, oh, you got an online degree. And then it's, now it's like, oh, okay, you, you just didn't go to a building. I mean, like now we think about it, it's like, oh, you don't have to go to a building <laughs> to get yep. something. You can still get education. And especially areas. here in the pandemic, you know, like that's the, the schools that were well prepared for that, I think have pivoted better. Um, and, you know, I know Rowan has put a bunch of money um, into that. And we already had certain majors that were exclusively online, like construction management that, you know, people work in the industry and that's a way for them to get that and move on in their career. And um, so we were able to pivot uh, well and, um, you know, are looking to increase our footprint in that. And you know, I know Arizona State just bought somebody uh, last year. I can't remember which online school to really expand their options. Like you said, Liberty um, was one of the first to really embrace that as a traditional four-year school that did that and they're now one of the largest amount of students in the country if not the largest because of that online uh, population as well so but I do think you're right at that time there was a little more of a negative stigma and I wonder sometimes if that did affect certain things and how people you know looked at me uh, but the education was great there I'm glad that stigma is being you know removed because there was a great mentorship um, part of that as well and um, you know where they tried to set up internships and you know, have coaches talk to each other about how they got jobs on there. And um, so they, I, I thought, you know, couldn't have been happier with, you know, the education I got through that and the way I was able to do it in a way that really worked with my career and allowed me to keep coaching. So I didn't have time to go while I was AD and, you know, trying to coach at the college and teach to go to a traditional school at night as well, or I wouldn't have been able to do either the coaching 
or the AD or one of them. So it really allowed me to do that. So it was really helpful. So you get your master's through the U.S. Sports Academy. You get a level two by the master, Bushek Snader. Uh, you're working with an unbelievable mentor in Bill uh, Ross there at Allegheny. And now you get two head coaching job offers on the same day. You finally, I shouldn't say you finally, but you know, you get this opportunity. You've been working towards it. Uh, talk to us. How did that go down and what did you end up deciding? Yeah, so I got a... a um, an interview at Buffalo State, and I drove up there and, you know, interviewed with the head coach. Did, did you wear pants this time? I did wear pants. I wore a suit. I, I was, uh, you know, I didn't look like um, a golfer at a casual course with my uh, khaki shorts and polo shirt, like the, uh, you know, high school interview there. But um, I did go up and, you know, met with Eugene Lewis and had a good interview there and um, thought it was good. Uh, Bill had heard another, and I won't say that the school that I didn't choose, uh, but um, he had heard another uh, person that he knew the AD well was having an opening. And he said, hey, I think Dustin might get this job at Buffalo State. If you want a chance at him, you need to interview him soon. And the AD was on vacation on the time and came in. He was fishing in the area, but he took a day off and like brought me in and interviewed me. And, um, you know, and we had a good um, thing. He basically offered me the job in the room and said, like, it can't be official right now because, you know, board of trustees, and we have to interview three people, but we like you. Um, you know, I've worked with Bill in the past. He's a great guy. We know what we're getting if he recommends you. Um, and, you know, let me, you know, I said, well, let me, uh, you know, talk to uh, my fiance. Um, let me talk to um, who was getting her master's at Penn at the time um, in Philadelphia. Well, I'm in Western PA. Um, and, you know, let me talk to her. Um, let me see. And while I'm driving back from that interview, I get the call from Eugene offering me the job at uh, Buffalo State. So literally a half hour, probably after. Um, like it's only it was it was a not a far drive uh, back to where I was living from the interview, and it was like on on that drive back, and it was like wow. Um, and Buffalo State paid less. It was a part time position, um, but they were trying to put two part time positions together. It was during a hiring freeze because the recession. Um, the whole state of you know, New York. So it was going to be uh, like a 60% pay cut, I think, from what I was making as a teacher, where I could make something pretty similar at the other school. But the SUNYAC was a pretty good conference. Um, and just what the AD had told me at the other school of what his expectations were and what I could and couldn't do travel wise. And they were expecting me to bring in a certain amount of student athletes that for the amount of people at the school didn't seem realistic and they weren't going to give me extra buses like to travel those kids so it was something that I was a little concerned about and I knew there had been some good people there and it was a good launching point of that school for other positions um, but it just I felt like the other one might be a better fit for me I talked to my fiance uh, she loved living in Philadelphia and Buffalo State being in a city the other place was pretty rural that, you know, factored in and we said, I, I think we can make this work. Um, even though it isn't much, it'll be enough to live on. It won't be much else. And, and Buffalo State followed through. They gave me a second one. It went well in the fall. So they, you know, gave me a part-time position for track as well. And in two years, I had to interview for my position, but, um, you know, got the full-time regular position once that state hiring freeze ended. But for me, it was about trying to find a place where I felt I could be successful. We had that at Allegheny where we had 
uh, you know, trophy teams in cross country. We're top 10 a bunch um, in cross country and track. And I'm, like I said, I'm a really competitive person. I wanted something that if it worked out at that place that I could, you know, continue to build there. And I saw a lot of potential in Buffalo State, um, but it also, and Eugene's vision and what he was already doing there, um, where they had some All-American sprinters and they just won their first ever indoor outdoor title for the women the year before I came in. Uh, but the other thing was, if I don't like it here, I want it to be a position where I can learn a lot, I can be in a competitive conference and I can move on to somewhere else. And I did like it, it was a good experience, but it, there wasn't room really for me to grow there after those years. Like I got to coach jumps there, I got to coach distance. Um, we had a trophy team uh, there, you know, for the first time ever um, with our women's team in, in track and, you know, had national qualifiers and school record holders. And it was a great experience and, you know, worked with one of who I considered one of the best assistant coaches and Marcus Allen uh, while I was there. He was, you know, great in what he was doing with a lot of our sprinters. And, um, and Eugene was a different coach than uh, Bill, which was really good for me too, because he had a different style. He came from a, a, a big football background and um, was a football coach there as well. So it was a different way to run practice and, and to do things. And I got a different perspective and really helped make me a more you know, well-rounded uh, coach there. Take us back to that car ride where you just got done with one interview. And then 30 minutes later, as you're driving back, you get another job offer. You essentially have two job offers in hands. We can all think about those times as we've gone through our coaching careers where we've gotten the job offer that we wanted. I mean, obviously if you get a job offer, you tried for it, so you wanted it. And the elation that comes with that, uh, you know, the excitement that comes with it. You have two job offers right there. So you have options. <laughs> Sometimes we don't have those options. Yep. How did you work that out in your headspace and maybe I'll give an example you know was it was there ego involved in the sense of like oh yeah I'm the man like I got two schools was it overwhelming like oh my goodness I have to make a decision and you walked us through that decision process which seems very thought out because it's not just you and your ego it's not just a paycheck it's not just a uh, can I go there and win am I the head person of you know I get to make all decisions but there's other factors right you have a fiance at that time uh, you have living conditions city versus rural etc um, but but what, what kind of when you got the second call because the first call feels good or the first interview because they gave you the you know basically gave you the job offer there that feels good like you know there's pride ego is not a bad thing it, it doesn't have to be a bad thing and then you get the other call now there's kind of that injection of adrenaline yeah. if you will how did you what, what were what were the emotions you're feeling as you're driving with two job offers i think more it was just i was incredulous like how is this happening now <laughs> i've been trying to do this and these both come at the same time and you know i talked to bill right away and um, you know, we talked about what might be best for me long-term and obviously had a relationship with the one AD and things, but he never tried to put that on me. He, uh, what are they offering you in pay? Um, I think, you know, he thought it should be more uh, than that as well. And even though the other place was less, um, you know, we talked about what might be the benefits of that. And um, it was, you know, a little overwhelming because you're, you're making this decision that is going to impact you well down the line. And like I said, I'm engaged now. I got to Think about that and you know my wife's about to graduate with her master's and where's a better chance um, to find 
you know, a job opportunity because in, in that area, in the Allegheny area, like I've been in that AD, I know superintendents in schools, like, and she was, you know, becoming a school counselor. So if I stay in that area or like go to, to Buffalo and um, what I didn't realize at the time, because Allegheny is a private school um, and would often try to help people find jobs in the area and things, but that state schools don't do that as much. <laughs> a lot of times I, just because of nepotism laws and things, not that you know, Allegheny will make sure you get a job whether you're qualified or not. No, they'd help find a good position, but there's a little more challenging at a state school, you know, with that. And I didn't, you know, realize that at the time, but, you know, going in and, and finding that out was, you know, interesting. But my wife was graduating in December. I was going to start this in the fall and then she would, you know, um, move up there and we were getting married the following summer. Um, so it was a lot of change at once um, with, you know, job, you know, that, um, so it was, you know, a little overwhelming, but, you know, made the decision and never wondered, you know, really uh, what if, you know, if I would have stayed in the area, I probably would have tried to become the head coach at Allegheny because Bill became AD the next year, assistant AD the next year. Um, and actually it was announced right before my wedding. He didn't even tell me about it at the wedding. And like, and then we had to think like, do we want to leave after a year to try to go back there? Because I did love it at Allegheny. I loved Meadville. Uh, I met my wife there. She was doing AmeriCorps um, in that area. Um, and so it was, you know, a really hard thing, but I liked what we were building at Buffalo State and said, you know, I'm going to stick this out and, you know, see where it goes. I love, I love that you fell back to your mentors when you're faced with a decision, a, a overwhelming at points decision. What did you do? You fell back to, let me talk to Bill. Let me talk to my fiance. Let me get. Uh, yep. other and Tim Rice still too, who, even though I only worked with one semester, like he was all about service as a coach. Um, and, you know, you've talked to me about it before, you know, like faith uh, playing a factor in there and that's who he was as a person. So talking to him about what he thought with it, you know, as well. And, and Bill, um, you know, obviously that time was the biggest influence on me. Uh, but, you know, Tim, you know, still did it and still checks up on me every year or two. Um, you know, even though he's been out of coaching, he's a professor at a couple online schools, including the U.S. Sports Academy now and works with U, uh, Basketball Ireland. But like he still checks in because I worked with him years ago on that. And that, that's something, you know, and I try to talk to Bill you know, fairly early, who was the head of NCAA committee for a while. So I got to see him, you know, at every national championship, but, you know, even now, you know, trying to check in with him at least once or twice a year. And, um, you know, those relationships really do, you know, you don't get to where you are based on what you're doing. You do it, you know, standing on the shoulders of all those people and uh, their advice and, and things. And that's, you know, been so helpful in my career. I encourage you to hit the, if you're on a podcast app uh, player, you know, they have the, the go back button 10 or 15 seconds. I encourage you to go hit the 15 second backup and listen to what Dustin just said there about you're not doing everything on your own. You're built on this pyramid of relationships, the shoulders of other men and women that have come before you and with you along the way. That's that was uh, spot on. Tremendous. That's a lot of value in that statement you just made right there, Dustin. So you mentioned service and you mentioned Bill being on committees. Uh, I do want to make sure we talk about this. So you have done a number of different service types. So not just coaching, but the USTFCCCA um, positions, committees, things like that. You've done some work on 
the regional system for division three and where they're at and how, how many and how many qualify and the things that we, you know, someone has to come up with those. And it's not someone, it's a committee uh, that represents the, the rest of the peers, the rest of the body. Take us through some of the, the positions that you've done. And also now that being at Rowan, some of these meets that you've held uh, regionals and big um, uh, invitationals and, and at large type meets. Talk us through that a little bit. Sure. Um, I got I got involved in that because I went uh, once I had a full time position. Bill had offered multiple times to take me to the coaches convention, but I could never do that with my teaching job. Um, I used all my vacation days to go to meet to nationals, conference championships, things that were multiple days. The thing I hated the most when I was teaching, like I liked being a teacher. I actually enjoyed that, but I hated missing a meet. Like if we went somewhere further away, a pen relays or Bucknell's distance carnival, that I might not be able to go for the Friday night, or I would drive after and try to get there at least for the 10K, you know, and drive four hours each way because I wanted to be there with, with the athletes. And, you know, it was never about what I was doing. It was like, I want to be there because I want to see what they're doing. And I want to, you know, I'm the one who like talks about their race plan or, or whatever. Um, and so at Buffalo State, the first year was during the recession. It didn't look like we were going to be able to go to the convention. Um, and like, we didn't have money in the budget for that. And then maybe a month and a half before they said, hey, we can give this much. And I said, hey, can I go to my convention? They said, sure. And I went down and, you know, somebody talked about, you should try to get involved if you want to, you know, do, you know, be a factor in the sport and things. And I thought, well, you know, I, I think I'd like to do that, but nobody knows who I am. Like I was a part-time assistant for years. Technically I'm still part-time at, at um, you know, at Buffalo State. So I have these like small positions during the hiring freeze. Um, nobody's gonna know who I am or vote for me for anything like that. But I thought also, I said, hey, well, if, if this is a factor, maybe if I'm on one of these committees, they'll send me back to the convention next year if there's a budget issue. So, you know, part of that was a, a little bit of, hey, this, this might be a way to do it. And so I said, you know, I, I'll try to be secretary. And, and, you know, I ran unopposed, so I got it. Um, and, you know, that was a position that didn't have a term limit. So I served on that for a while. Um, when you say you were the secretary, is this the Division Three? For USTFC? Division Three cross country, I was the secretary for the executive committee, um, and I think it was Kathy Lanise that talked me, uh, Case Western that talked me into, well, you should be president. Duff. Like you've done this for long enough that you've worked with multiple presidents, and somebody starts, we're asking you, you know, are we doing this right? And that you should. Do this and so uh, you know she nominated me uh you know for that and then you become you know second vice president and then first vice president it's a thing so you learn how to do it as you go along and are ready to hit the ground uh running um so this is i think my 13th year on the executive committee um because they extended you know how long presidents were why we were in it because they felt two years wasn't enough you just kind of start knowing really what you're doing and then you're done uh, so they extended that to three years, did away with the second vice president. So it's still six-year commitment for both people. But for me, it became eight because I'd already done two years um, and, you know, five years as a secretary before that. As others are listening and they've seen these positions, we if we go to the USTFCCA convention, we know about these positions. Even if you aren't going, you probably know about these different volunteer positions. If someone is thinking about, well, maybe, you know, to your point, Dustin, maybe I should 
maybe I'll start at the secretary and see what that helps. Help us understand what, what is a secretary of the division three championship? What do you do? What are your roles? And then marry that with, okay, you became president. What are the different roles and how do they change and what time commitment and things like that? Yeah. And um, I just want to start with saying you shouldn't be where I was in mindset. Like nobody knows who I am. I shouldn't do this. We don't care about that. Um, you know, the coaches association doesn't, I don't think the NCAA does. They want people who are passionate about the sport. Um, and so secretary was basically just take notes in the meetings at the beginning. Um, I don't think we had a parliamentarian at first. So you had to know a little bit of that and make sure things follow. There is a parliamentarian now um, that, you know, makes those meets or those meetings run how they should, I guess. Uh, not that they are crazy and, you know, devolve if uh, we're not there, but especially when we're making policy changes for the whole body, we want to make sure those things happen. Um, but, you know, there's committee assignments where both for track and cross country, where there's a person from each region for gender, and they talk about rule changes or proposals for rule changes and discuss that and whether it should go forward to the body. Um, there's a parliamentarian, there's a historian, um, there's all these positions um, and those positions are great because it's people who really care about it. If you go look at the D3 historians report, wow, like the job um, done there is amazing where they've top 10 of everything and they've went back and, um, you know, for years and, and looked at that. And, you know, a lot of these things, and they're, they're just service that doesn't get any recognition. You know, these are people who just love the sport. They want to know it. They knew other people wanted to know it. I'll do it. Um, and, and it doesn't have to be long. You're, the terms for a regular committee person are three years. Like I said, if, if a secretary position opens, that's open-ended, but that can be good or bad because you can, I guess it's good no matter what. If you only want to do it for a year, you can. If you want to do it for two decades, you probably could. Um, so you kind of know when you're done uh, there and you can serve two term limits. So if somebody really likes it, they can serve you know, up to six years now. I mean, we did just extend those to three years from two as well for the same uh, reason. Uh, but, you know, that's it. Like we call for volunteers for things all the time at the convention, like be on the Hall of Fame committee, be on a committee that's looking at altitude adjustments or, or whatever. And there's working committees on, you know, what cross country courses should look like. And um, because, you know, finding people who meet the requirements for regionals or nationals was hard for a while. So should we re-examine that? So how do you you guys make those decisions? Is this a backfilled, smoke-filled room where, you know, the three, four, or five, I'm not sure how many people are on there are making these decisions, or are you reaching out to the rest of the coaching body and getting their opinions? How does that happen? Yeah, we usually make a decision as an executive committee, and that's 16 region reps, because two from each region, um, president, vice president, uh, for a while there, second vice president, um, you know, those are the people who, you know, kind of have a a vote in that, um, but that just is what we bring to the body. And even if we say we don't think we should go forward, we still bring it to the body and anybody can call for a motion to you know, vote on it on the floor. But sometimes things are already addressed. Like somebody might not know a rule change is coming in or we say like, this is great intention, but there's no real way to implement it. Um, so then it always comes before the body, we vote on it. Um, sometimes we try to get ahead of things. NCAA was talking about realignment. You mentioned that you know, in your question. And when I was secretary, I was in charge of the committee for that. And we wrote up a plan um, and other people came up with other plans. Hey, let's add regions, let's do that. 
Um, and part of it was, you know, the financial situation of the NCAA, what they said they thought they could or couldn't do. And we put forward what we thought was a much better proposal than the NCAAs, which was based on other sports. It was by conferences in which conferences were in a region. Well, in Division Three, travel money isn't maybe as what it is in D1 and D2 at some places. In certain conferences, like the conference I was in at Buffalo State at the time, went from Boston to Fredonia, New York. That was a region, and we'd pass through two other regions if it was in Boston. And we said, well, this doesn't make sense. We can make this much more geographic that makes a little more sense to it. So we did that. Um, they chose not to realign at the time with NCAA, and then it came back up uh, recently, and we submitted a 10-region proposal. They were more open with that and have been positive. We're just kind of waiting now on the financial realities of the pandemic of whether NCAA can move forward. But it was favorably, you know, reviewed by the NCAA Championships Committee and passed on um, with some some tweaks and, you know, things that they thought were best at their level. Um, so that went in, you know, years of multiple committees doing that and people being on it that were region reps, but also asking for feedback. Look at this. Did we miss someone? Should this person be there? And then we make, you know, the changes, but we don't want it to be a smoke-filled room. That's how some people say, like, where did this come from? We're like, well, that's why we vote on it at the convention. That's why there's open discussion at the convention. And that's why it's important for a lot of people, you know, if they can, again, financial realities are what they are, even more so even after the pandemic. But if you can, um, the education things at the, uh, the convention are great. Um, Sam Seams has done such a great job um, at the USPSCCA of growing that organization. Um, the, the stories from the early years where like, you know, you know, it's at a small hotel, you know, hotel, and now like we have trouble finding hotels big enough because we sell them out. Um, uh, he's just done such a great job uh, with that and promoting our sport, and and we're seeing a lot of that with what you talked about. Like we just saw cross country and track on ESPN, um, and you know that's the NCAA, but that's Sam advocating for it. That's coaches advocating for it. Um, but you know, there's so many things of ways you can get involved that like I had no idea that day that would lead to being on an executive committee for 13 years um, and, you know, being part of, you know, trying to change our sport for the better. Because um, again, I felt pretty insignificant there. Like, I don't know most of these people. Um, and, but it was a great networking opportunity to, to get to know people. And same with being on these committees. Like, I know so many people from that, or, you know, they reach out about grad assistance to people on the committee or, or those kind of things. And, becomes opportunities for your athletes and um, all those kind of things you don't think about when you're like, should I do this? There are so many ways to grow on it and the relationships you make with it and um, the people moving in and off the committees. And those are people we talk to every time you go to nationals or a, a meet a little bit further away or when you're considering going to a meet and flying there to reach out and say, hey, is this a good fit for us? And that has helped so much uh, in so many ways. So as you guys meet and talk, uh, you know, listening to the body of Division Three coaches through the regions, and then you make your, you know, you do your vote, and you take that recommendation to the NCAA, and then the, and they have a committee which is made up of Division Three coaches and athletic directors and such. Uh, what are some of the things that you have been involved in that you're most proud of? Some of the things, that, changes that you've made positively for Division Three track and cross country. Well, if the regional realignment goes through, I think that would be the biggest just because it was one of the first things I started working on. We've done multiple, um, you know, plans for it and really got feedback. And it was such an overwhelming 
uh, support even at the convention. Like a lot of things are, you know, 50-50 what people want or how they feel like sometimes that we want this, but it'll be hard to be implemented like we mentioned. But this was something like close to 80, 85% of coaches said, yes, if we're gonna do it, this is how we should do it. And in division three, our regions are like the three regions in the Northeast all have 65 to you know 75 teams. And then there's other regions that have 35. And you know there is a way to do it. And it's hard because there aren't many teams in the mountain region in division one. There's one team in Colorado. You know, there's one team in Nebraska. Then there's only about 14 teams, 20 teams on the West Coast. There's some in Texas, but very few anywhere around there. Like there's a bunch of states that have no division three schools in them. Uh, so that's something that I think a lot of people don't realize. And so like the South region so spread out, the West region spread out. And like one of the big things on this, and I don't know, I don't remember how the, or what the NCAA's recommendation was. We gave two options of what, what do you do with Texas? Do they go to the South or do they go to the West? It's equidistant equal, either way, but you know, like the West has less teams. That was what we recommended, but we voted on it. And it was about 50, 50. Like we said, we understand if you want to keep them in the South too, because it, either way would be good. So that would be probably one of the, the biggest things. Um, otherwise, uh, most of them are small changes. Like they've really made some changes in the at-large uh, selection process for um, you know cross country and how those are looked at. And you know, just I think more the relationship that was built the last couple of years uh, between the executive committee at the NCAA level and the coaches association. There, there were times where like we that you know, coaches association would give things and nobody would really listen. But now they do, that doesn't mean they're gonna adopt it. They're gonna do what, you know, they have ADs on that committee, like you said, and other people. Um, and sometimes what coaches want isn't financially feasible or they feel like, you know, the system is going well um, anyway, uh, but they are listening now and we have that open communication. And, you know, I can call Laura Peterson, um, who's, you know, at the NCAA level and she'll pick up every time or call me right back. Um, you know, as president and, you know, and or say, what do you think about this? We're going to meet on it. And that she is reaching out to us to get that feedback. Or I know, you know, you guys usually meet a week before us. So talk to your group about this and see what they think. And, and that communication is one of the things that I'm really, you know, happy and proud of too, because that's how we really do make changes by working with all the people that have the policy decisions, the coaches who want to see it and need to bring those things up the NCAA committee who makes it, the ADs and, you know, interacting with our ADs and our conference commissioners to try to um, get some of those changes. So those are the things I think that are good. And I'm sure I'm missing something that like you said, you guys did this. I'll say, oh, you know, completely forgot about that, but you know, it's made a difference and I'm glad. Uh, but you know, it is, most of the things are little things that most people aren't gonna notice, but they're micro changes over time that we hope make things easier and better and really a better experience for the athletes. That's what it's really about. Yeah, we get it, Dustin. You've done so many things. We, we get it. Yeah. No, that's not what I was saying, Mike. <laughs> I know, buddy. I know. Uh, and by the way, shout out to Laura at the NCAA. Uh, great person, uh, servant leader, 100% through and through, and really cares about uh, the organization as a whole and its coaches and obviously the student athlete experience through the NCAA is absolutely. Uh, well, as we start wrapping up here, Dustin, you know, you went to a division three school, coached at division three schools, and now uh, head coach at a division three institution, plus being on the USTFCCCA 
Division Three committees. Tell tell us more about the uniqueness of Division Three. Why have you stayed Division Three through your career and not moved up? Obviously, your coaching credentials and servant attitude would lend itself to um, uh, positive improvements at Division Two and Division One and junior college and AIA. Not to uh, help them or not to uh, take them out of the equation either. What what is it about Division Three that's unique that you kind of are drawn to? If if, uh, if that's the right way to say it. Yeah, I think it's always just been what Division Three stands for as far as academics, and it's the student first, um, being more than just the athlete, and, and going on to see what those students do. Um, I've always liked that about Division Three. Um, I've thought about the other divisions and things, but like to me, this has always been, I want to be at a place where I can be successful, where I can make a difference, and where um, you know we're impacting lives, because that's what got me into coaching was that impact from Coach Eibel, you know, in high school, um, on through my mentors and, and those things that we brought up, um, you know, that's what got me into coaching. So I wanted to do that. And and at Rowan, I feel like it's going to be better than a lot of Division One positions anyway. Like I said, how the school's growing, um, a lot of those things. Um, I have four Olympians on my staff. Like I don't know if any other program um, in the country has that um, in any division. Like Norm Tate. Um, who was a, a U.S. Olympian in the triple jump uh, in 68, Milton Good, who was a high jump Olympian for the U.S. Um, our women's coach, Ringo Adamson, was a national champion at Glassboro State, was on four national championship teams, is still the Jamaican record holder um, for the marathon, um, competed in 84 and 88, um, was a national champ, like I said, national champion as an individual in the steeple here. And then our new assistant AD last year, Christina Fink, was a high jump Olympian, uh, for Mexico. So like we have all these people here at a division three school. So when people say division three, a lot of times it's, you know, lower division, this and that. So we try to, we're not going to have all the gear and things that some of the division one schools do. And, you know, we're not going to be able to go to Florida relays one week and Texas relays the next, but we try to do some of those things with spring break trips and give those kind of experience and try to give as much of a division one track experience as we can with the division three, what we call it, you know, division three values and not that the other divisions don't have those, but really focusing on um, those relationships and the academic side of things and the internships that they're getting and, and some of those things. And that, you know, as a state school, a lot of times we're even comparable to a, a men's track scholarship because there are so few scholarships in men's track, um, even for a fully funded program. Like we have 75 men on our team and we cut down to 75. Um, so when we go to a scored meet, um, a lot of times we'll win a meet with 15 Division One teams there, but it's because we're deeper. We have a bigger team. Um, we don't always have some of the top end people. We have some, you know, like the one year we had two guys over seven foot in the high jump in the same year. And, um, you know, this year we have six guys on our team over 23 feet in the long jump. And like those are numbers that are Division One numbers. And these kids are Division One athletes. They could go that way. But, you know, we are a better fit where the academic level of Rowan is, the cost, um, maybe, you know, that they are maybe first generation college student and that extra support or having a coach that also is like that, you know, is appealing um, to them. Um, and like I said, it's, we have such a great staff here at Rowan as well, where we have an assistant coach for every event group. Um, so we really try to do kind of what I look as the division one model. And even though those coaches don't make nearly what they're worth, they do it like they could make more as a high school coach, a lot of them, or they volunteer. Um, they're doing it because they like being part of the program. And that's how I think you have a successful program is you bring people around you that are really good. You know, that's 
that's the best thing. And then you try to give them room to grow and, and do that just like I was given that. And, you know, any success we've had here is um, more so on our assistants and, and the athletes buying in than is on anything that I've done. So in social media, and maybe if you are a regular listener, you know I'm a huge social media advocate. Uh, I think there's more positive than, than negatives. We do like to talk about the negatives uh, too much, in my opinion, but, you know, and, and it can be negative, just like anything, in my opinion, can be negative. Uh, but I see the positives in the communication. So on social media, and specifically, I like to hang around Twitter, we are seeing a lot of um coaches talking about, hey, athletes, if you have a division one or bust mentality, you are missing out. Uh, you know, I saw one thing, uh, opportunity to compete on D1 is awesome. Opportunity to compete at D2 is awesome. D3, awesome. Juco, awesome. like the yep. opportunity to compete is awesome, regardless of what level you're at. Talk to us. So that's about the athlete. If, if there's a coach listening right now, Dustin, and uh, or someone who's about to graduate and they, and they want to they're like yeah yeah i'm going to be a track coach but maybe they have that division one or bust mentality as a coach what advice would you give them in regards to looking at d3 positions what what maybe uh, is different from your experience of talking with other division one division two naias etc coaches why is a division three coaching job uh, just as good, if not better, in some examples to have versus the other uh, divisions? Yeah, I think track is really unique in the fact that, um, you know, Division One basketball is way different than Division Three basketball. Like, there's rarely going to be a Division Three team that plays an exhibition game or something and beats a D1 team. Um, in track, because um, – some people have less coaching, whatever. Like, and you'll find that Division Three basketball star that goes on to play professionally or, or whatever. Um, triple jump record holder at Buffalo State still, um, you know, was an NBA player. Um, he was the Iron Man most consecutive games without missing a start. Um, and you know, like, so there are those stories. But in Division Three, you're going to be competitive, and you compete against all three divisions anyway. Um, if you really want to work with Olympians, then you're not going to find many at Division Three. You're going to find them, you know, um, Jeremy Scott uh, from Allegheny, you know, in the pole vault, and Nick Simmons and Will Lear, and you know, there's there's people you can keep going. Andrew Rock, and you know, you can find the people who competed at a high level, or, or Ringo Adamson, you know, our women's coach. Uh, but it's if you want that, like that happens more even at the Power Five level, and we're seeing more people break out of that. Like that's one of the things I love in Division One is rooting for those non-Power Five teams that you know, North Carolina A&T right now and Akron, you know, really did that uh, work with top 10 finishes and things and producing Olympians. You can do it anywhere if you find the right setup for you. But I think the most important thing for people when you have the option, when you're first finding a coaching job, it's you, you've got to find a coaching job and find the strengths of that program, recruit to that, whether it's whatever the major is or a history or whatever it is and own that program and do whatever you can for it. But then it's about finding a place that you're comfortable being successful. That's why, you know, hopefully I stay here for a long time at Rowan because I feel it's a place I can be successful. I like, you know, the coaching staff I have around me. I like, um, you know, where we're allowed to go for meets and things like that and the level of athlete that I'm getting. And that doesn't mean I don't ever want to work with an Olympian or things like that. And we hope we get that, that person. But, you know, it, it's more about finding a way to impact people and, and do that. And it's really what you want as a coach. 
But if it's just coaching high-level athletes, you can find that anywhere. And you listening to your podcast is great because you hear people who were D3 and went to D1, who were high school and went to D1, who were D1 and went back to D3, uh, you know, and, and found different things and just found the best fit for them. So I think that's more what it is, is just being open-minded because you don't know what the best fit for you would be. To me, like I said, right now, um, because we're very competitive in our conference in the region and at the national level, um, and I'm able to host meets, I'm able to host regionals and build a regional cross-country course. A lot of smaller D1 programs wouldn't give me all those opportunities. Um, and here I can, you know, like where, you know, watching the D1 cross-country championship, like at Oklahoma State, the AD said, here's the money, do what you want, build this course. That would be awesome. If you find the right thing like that, you know, maybe I would think about that, but like, I have no desire and no thing where like my ego says, that's where I can be and that's what I should do. Um, and not that that's bad if that's what people want. I think you really have to look at why you want to do it and what you want from it and then find what works for you and just not think that one division is going to be the only one that can get you there um, because you have no idea, you know, where that journey takes you and, um, you know, what will lead you into coaching. Um, like not a lot of people are a high school AD to become a college coach, uh, but it helped me. Um, you know, a lot of people are GAs or volunteer first, and that's the easiest way to get into it. But the, the best advice is just go out there and do it somewhere, you know, be a high school coach, do that, learn, talk to people, network, um, and doing that, you're going to find an opportunity, hopefully that works well for that person. What great words of advice there, Dustin, you know, we, what, what you just said right there, if you were to replace the word coach with athlete, we hear every day right? Hey, athlete, don't pick a school based on, we're talking about track athletes here, based yep. on the football team or uh, because the coach, you know, they, the coach, they're a professional, they can, they can move, right? You, you might not have that coach much till your experience at Grove City even, right? Uh, so we, we hear that advice for athletes, pick a school based on academics, your major, pick a school yep. based on the fit of the school, things like that. What great advice that I have not heard I think this is an important discussion that needs to be had more in our track and field coaching profession is where you coach. Is it the right place for you? Not, is it uh, a great emblem to have based on the football team? Again, by the way, uh, we talk about, you know, pay and, you know, a lot of times we talk about the pay, the salary of the position. And we talk about, well, we're doing it for the kids and things like that. Well, you're also doing it for your family and your you know, kids, if you have them, uh, your own quality of life. And uh, as far as coaching acumen, you know, when you think about division one, division two, II, division three, and oh, the athletes are better at division one, if you look at national marks, etc. So the coaches must be better. You know, I'll challenge that. Uh, go look at the division three national championship results. Uh, uh, there ain't nothing to sneeze about. Uh, I, I would say maybe a hundred percent of all of the national champions on division three would be welcome on almost any division one team, <laughs> like yeah. open arms, like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You can, you can come here. We're okay. You'll, you'll be, you'll be good. <laughs> yep. so. And some of those athletes are like we, we have a person at Rowan. It used to be if you won Division Three, you got to go to Division One. We have a Division One national champion from Rowan in the javelin, you know, and he finished second two other years, and you know, all kinds of other people who did that, and we see that, and, and there aren't as many like you said, but um, but the coaches, um, like you said, like Al Carius, like one of the best distance. It doesn't matter what division it is, like 
people like listen when he speaks because it's good. And like you said, for the athletes, I think it's important to hear that too, because you could be coached by somebody that you didn't realize was a great coach because you're looking at the division. And I think that's the part, like we're hearing it more, like you said, on social media, you see it. I don't think they hear why, you know, it's that you can be just as good of an athlete if you go there. Like I said, Norm Tate's on my staff. He's been the head coach for the U.S. under 20 team. You know, he's coached Olympic hurdlers privately. Like he coached Jack Pierce. And like, so like you're having a guy who's one of the U.S. coaches um, be your coach here at a division three school. Um, you know, and, and across the board, I think Gary Aldridge, I think is on the Olympic, um, staff this year as a division three coach at Carnegie Mellon. And, you know, like those kind of things, like there are good coaches at every division. So don't feel like with your ego that you can't be good and be there and develop people and, or continue to develop after division three coaches, coach clubs, they do that. Or when you can't do it, you pass it on to somebody else. Cause that's the great thing about our sport is how can I make this athlete better? It's by that collaboration and doing that. And, um, you know, hopefully coaches do find that and, and some division three schools pay really well and division one schools pay terribly. So that's a, a thing that, um, some people don't realize as well. It's like, well, if I'm a division one coach, like I'll definitely make more money. And that might be true at some of the power five schools, but I'm sure there's a couple of like, people can give me examples of power five schools that might make less than I do, you know, but it's, it's something that you have to find what's best for you, your family, and really your situation in the long run of where you can feel fulfilled, successful, and that. And I think that's more important than some of the people that are always grasses, gonna be greener. And it is going to be sometimes like, you have to be willing to grow and look at those options. But at the same time, you have to be willing to say sometimes, well, maybe I could really grow things here. Like Mar like Gonzaga's basketball. Like when I was in high school, like that was in, in college, that's when they really started coming and he never left. You know, and they're ranked number one in the country, the number one seed in the tournament. And that's, you can find that at small D1 schools. You can find that at D3 schools that people didn't go on. And there are times when people do step up and take that challenge and it's what's best for them. Like none of it's a good or a bad thing. It's what's best for you. And I think that's what people lose sight of sometimes is you're not good if you're not doing this. Yeah, I appreciate you bringing that up. Except we talk about it with the athletes on a daily basis. Uh, but as we're talking about the profession, the people who choose the profession of coaching, uh, we have to start looking, we have to start having these conversations of the more holistic and whether it's the salary for your family and for your own um, well-being, uh, your location of the school, uh, the time commitment to the, to, the, uh, to the program as well. I think that's a discussion that needs to be, that needs to happen more and that it's not, there is no, if you're division three, oh, well, you're not as good as division one. First of all, I, I, I would love to, I'd spend an hour on a podcast defining what a good coach is. It is yeah. not I'll give you a little preview. <laughs> it is not just because you can coach a long jumper to 28 feet. You, yep. you, you may be a good coach. I mean, maybe you're a good long jump coach, but there is a whole basket of things of what a good coach is. It's not just the technical model. It's the who you are as a person, how you conduct yourself with athletes, how you recruit, how you interact with parents, alumni, et cetera. Who are you as a husband or a wife or a dad or a mom, a, a son, a daughter, those roles are, I'm sorry, way more important than your role as a coach. Yep, and then you wear a lot of hats. Like you're a social worker. I've helped kids with their taxes. I've done like all kinds of things I never thought I would do. Right now we're, you know, with COVID protocols and trying to be able to host meets and the things that we're trying to think about and learn about, um, you know, is 
way more than, you know, med medically related things. And, you know, you thought you would work on like, we, you know, are focused on muscles and breathing systems and things, but not viruses and, you know, that. So like you, you don't know what it's going to be and it, it's finding that balance and, you know, what you can do to, again, help the kids and the athletes be the best they can be. Um, and hopefully your assistant coaches, like I said, I wouldn't be who I was without all the coaches that I've worked with and, and that I, you know, ran under and those things of things I liked, things I didn't like, and I wouldn't want to be, um, you know, and I try to focus on the positive things, but you can learn a lot from that, from hiring and, you know, an assistant who's good for you and an assistant who doesn't do a good job. And how could I have identified that earlier? There's so many things to always learn. And, and I didn't think about that as I'm a coach. So like, it's, going in saying, well, I'm going to work with athletes. It's not, I have to learn how to, you know, fill out this paperwork and do this for budget and vendor licensing and, you know, all those things that are sometimes thrown on top. But it's like, those are the things you do to get through to do the, the thing you like. And there's some people who love that part. You know, they're super organized and they, um, you know, really embrace uh, some of the other stuff too. And that's great. And it's finding a good balance on a staff and things if you have multiple options of, finding people who complement themselves, complement each other and make a whole better than the parts. And that's definitely here. Like I said, our assistants here um, are great. And even Ringo and I are very different people with the men's and women's program and why we run separate programs, you know, hosting a meet or doing those kind of things takes both of us. And, you know, he does almost all the stuff out at the course uh, where, you know, he's out there with the people like we work at, uh, we have a course uh, that's a county park and, you know, talking to them about, we want to cut out another swathy or widen this and you know we talk about it and he you know makes that happen he's out there doing that where he has me contact teams and that and um you know not that I don't like being out there but we we play on each other's strengths and that helps so much and that's something that I think the biggest thing that I tried to do at first was do everything and you have to be able to trust the people around you you have to be able to find what they can do best and then mold yourself if you're the head coach to do the other things and it may change. Um, you know, I've heard that from coaches like that change what events they coach all the time as the head coach, because it depends what assistant they can get. And, and it changes with that. And like, I don't coach our high jumpers much anymore because Milton, you know, is helping. And, you know, I was coaching a seven foot high jumper when he came in, but, you know, he made him a seven, two high jumper. So I, I don't care. Like he's an Olympic high jumper that had way more to offer than I felt I could. And that doesn't mean he doesn't ask what I think and things like, and finding those kind of things and how you can do that. Again, I think it comes back to what you said about ego and, you know, even in our talks before about, um, you know, what you can do that's best. It's find what your assistants can do best. And then from there, mold yourself around what your team needs as a head coach. Um, that's what Bill did for me. Like he kept having me do different event things and that, you know, helped me become who I was. It helped our athletes uh, because had them give more feedback on training even as a coach was learning it and that wasn't like he didn't do anything with it or make sure the training wasn't good like it's not you know give that but it's have those learning moments and find ways uh to do that even if it's hard to let go sometimes like my uh, distance assistant does most of our distance stuff and I was a distance runner that was hard for me to let go at first but that was you know he talked to me sometimes about hey could I do more here yes you know if that's what you can do then I can focus more on this Right. Well, those are 
super important topics. Um, appreciate you bringing them up. I mean, you know, we purposely don't talk about the X's and O's. You know, we never talk about the uh, how many quarter repeats do you have your 5K people do and what's your yeah. 1K splits and all that stuff because there's some other amazing resources for that, including the US TFCCCA convention, uh, as we mentioned before. So, you know, this podcast goal and aim is always, first of all, to connect people together. People are going to hear your story and your journey and it's going to affect them in positive ways. Someone will reach out to you saying, hey, I didn't know you went to Grove City. I used to coach there in the 60s or whatever. Or, hey, I have a kid who's thinking about transferring there. And so that is always goal number one. And goal number two with the podcast is having those difficult conversations right there about, hey, it is not just like you counsel high school kids to not pick the school based on the football team, uh, that it's a more holistic decision. Same thing with your coaching career as you are deciding where to go, who to coach with, what status do you become an assistant coach versus as a head coach that's that that those two roles are not for everybody either by the way and people don't realize that that's such a huge point like some people are great assistant coaches and wouldn't be a good head coach and that's okay like that's not a bad thing like focus on what you're really good at and do that and let somebody else do it and there's some people who are head coaches that are more that program manager that are the people who hold things together and don't have as much one-on-one -on -one that's okay too that's what's making your program great like just find the role that works best for you and explore other things, but don't uh, feel you have to do it because that's the next step on the ladder. Exactly. That's exactly right. We all have individual journeys. No two journeys look alike, you know, yep. uh, even though they may lead to the same successes or in games, they're, they're different routes to, to each uh uh, in, in game for our career. So Dustin, thank you so much. First of all, I just want to thank you for what you do for our sport in general, not just the coaching side, but that service component. Uh, we didn't even get to some of the meets that you've held there at Dustin or <laughs> Dustin at Rowan. Maybe they're going to change the name to Dustin University. No, I, don't I don't think know. that's Maybe. happening. <laughs> you, you know, you only, he gave a hundred million. So you're going to have to top that just so you know, to rename it. Good luck. Yep. Uh, yep. <laughs> Hopefully I win the lottery. Yeah. I don't know if that would do it. <laughs> But uh, just so thankful for that and for, you know, stepping up and volunteering, you know, when you were, I'm doing air quotes here, only a volunteer or a part-time you know what, it doesn't matter what is in front of coach, volunteer, part-time, full-time, assistant, head coach, et cetera, graduate assistant, you have value and we need more people to speak in and not only speak in your own opinions, but having the humility to listen to others and being able to, to work for them on a committee level, uh, whether it's USTFCA and then uh, obviously working towards NCAA and maybe even USATF and NFHS type stuff as well. So just want to say thank you for your service, uh, for our sport for that. And then also just for your time today, man, this was great. I was super excited to learn more about your story and share it with our listeners. Thanks for having me on. And the last thing I want to leave for the other coaches is reach out if you don't know something and ask for help. You mentioned that. And I want to say like, that's something I was always afraid to do. Like this person isn't going to, you know, know who I am or take the time. And I've been amazed that coaches who do uh, do that, um, that reach out no matter what the level and not just about coaching. Like we've had coaches reach out about COVID protocols for meets and things. Why are we all doing the same work when we can use things together? We used what Wartburg was using for their D3 elite meet to look at some of their things. Um, for their, you know, to replace the national championship. That was the first thing. And then added things from other conferences and then share that with people because that's the only way we can all make our sport better. That's great advice. Don't answer for someone else. And what I mean by that is 
if you are, uh, have some concerns of reaching out to a coach because you think that coach may or may not reach out to you, don't answer no for them. Reach out. I, I agree. I don't know why I keep saying I'm surprised because you know, I, I, great coaches, Mouse, Boo, Carol, people that I've reached out to that I know are super busy yep. uh, to a T answer back when I was a coach answered back a hundred percent. We're in coaching specifically track and field because we are givers by nature. So don't answer no for someone, reach out, ask for help, ask for advice, uh, ask for, you know, buy coffee and learn more about their journey and let them tell you no, maybe, maybe they will tell you no, but don't assume, don't answer for them. So Dustin, thank you again so much for being on the show today. Uh, listeners, I'm so again, just humbled that you would be here and listen to Dustin's story. Uh, it's a goal of mine to reach out to all of our divisions, you know, coaches on the JUCO, NEIA, all three NCAA divisions, and I need to do a better job. I need to get some more high school uh, men and women coaches on here because uh, every one of their journeys is important and we can learn something from each one of their stories. And I'm just so humbled that guys like Dustin would join us and share his journey. So if you found value in today's show, do me a favor. Uh, I think other people in your network would probably receive value then as well. If you would share today's podcast, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, smoke signals, whatever you're using out there today, uh, email, we still use email, right? Maybe you can email someone just a copy and maybe what value you saw on it. And then of course, uh, you know, if you want to tag me, hit me up on Twitter at Mike Cunningham, would love to talk to you. Cause that's, again, that's my favorite social media. So thank you again for being here today, Dustin, you're awesome, man. Love you to death. Appreciate the professors being the profs being here in the house today. Uh, thank you. You guys go out and have a great job and join us next week. We'll, we'll have some more amazing coaches sharing their journey.